Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast. Listen in as your host, Jimmy Atkinson, invites industry leaders to share their best OZ insights and investment strategies. From market updates to fund launches, policy news, tax mitigation strategies, and more, we cover it all here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Great pleasure to have our amazing pool of speakers today. Joe Scalio is the senior partner uh, in charge of tax at KPMG and lead of the Opportunity Zone practice. KPMG is our tax advisor and full disclosure for the Opportunity Zone Fund. Kunal Shah, managing director and head of research at iCapital Network, uh, which works with financial advisors to connect them to managers like us. And Jimmy Atkinson, founder and CEO of OpportunityDB, which is an online network of investors interested in real assets, alternative investment strategies, and Jimmy produces an amazing uh, content for all the alternatives and particularly Opportunity Zones. If you haven't seen his blogs and uh, webinars, do check it out. So with that, if you guys want to say a few words about how you came to this, that would be great. And then we'll get into the substantive discussion about regulation and any updates that there are to the policy. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about manager selection and the criteria that go into selecting investments. Um, and we'll talk about the landscape. Uh, Jimmy will start us off just talking about how much has been invested in the space, where is it going, which markets, which strategies. So with that, why don't we start with Jimmy and if you want to say a few words about yourself, but really focus on the big picture of Opportunity Zones. Sure. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I'm Jimmy Atkinson, founder and CEO of Opportunity DB, as Peter just mentioned. I founded uh, Opportunity DB in 2018. I, I learned about Opportunity Zones uh, right after the zones were designated in July of that year. And I, I went to the internet immediately uh, upon first learning about it because I thought, this sounds like a great program. I want to learn more about it. And there really wasn't a lot of information about it, probably some uh, really geeky articles maybe written by Joe or <laughs> some other some other accountants or, or attorneys, but there wasn't anything that was directed at um, the retail high net worth accredited investor. That's kind of my bread and butter is, is catering content to that audience. Uh, and fast forward four years later, I can claim that we're the largest independent media and events organization that is solely focused on the Opportunity Zones industry, and I'm happy to further promote education of what I think is the, possibly the greatest tax policy that's uh, ever been created, the greatest tax incentive that's ever been created at the very least. So that's a little bit about me. Yeah, I can go next. Um, so Kunal Shah, uh, I'm a managing director, head of um, research intelligence at iCapital. Uh, we are a fintech platform. Uh, so we connect high net worth investors looking for alternative investments through a technology layer where you know, you, you transact essentially online rather than doing the paper trails and subdoc processing. Um, we have 11,000 financial advisors uh, signed up on the platform. So we had a B2B business where we directly serve the advisors who serve the end clients. So we don't directly go to the clients. Um, and about three or four years ago, when the Opportunity Zone first came out, we started looking at it as an opportunity for our clients, right? Which is, we have a lot of wealthy clients who have a lot of gains and they all should benefit from this really unique and creative program that was introduced. And so that piqued our interest. So we started digging into it. We started building a pipeline. We started understanding the regulation. And we are an existing investor in GTI's Opportunity Zone Fund 1. So we have been part of it. We have underwritten Peter and Tom and the team uh, at, at pretty significant length. 
and excited to sort of offer the same product again to them. Uh, we are working with them on, on the fund too right now as well. Uh, and you know, we did a lot of heavy lifting on our side to understand how the law impacts our clients and look forward to discussing some of our sort of findings as well. Thank you. I'm Joe Scalio. Um, as Peter was saying, you know, I, I kind of approach this from the tax side and um, how I got involved in this is kind of, you know, a little bit interesting is when the tax rule, tax act came out in 2017, there were certain areas that everyone like wanted to focus on. And then there was this little weird provision back there called opportunity zones and everyone at least initially poo-pooed it and treated all the, we've had, had enterprise zones, we've had empowerment zones, we had all these things. This is just the next iteration of it. And after a period of time, it became clear that this was, you know, not, you know, placing lots of restrictions, but really just where do the dollars go and where do they get deployed? And then, you know, I think as you said, once the zones got designated, people started to say, oh, wow, you know, if I'm going to invest in certain areas that I'm sure Peter can talk about, um, you know, the, these benefits can be, you know, avail for my investors. And the answer was yes. So sort of came about, you know, by elimination that no one really wanted to do it at KPMG. And they said, well, why don't you go ahead and start to do it? <laughs> and I said, sure, we'll put together a team. And since then, you know, over the last three plus years, we've put together a national team in different offices and areas. And uh, you know, we have a leadership team of myself and uh, two other people uh, that lead that team nationally and it's grown. And you know, we've been excited uh, over the last couple of years. And you know, I think um, you know, this, this program has been a little bit cursed. You know, it had a little bit of runway before it could come up because of regulations. The final regs came out in effectively January of 2020, COVID hits. But I do think over the last year and a half or so, I've really seen where the program has now got good foundation. It's good, got good regulations, relatively good regulations. <laughs> uh, it's got you know ways where you know people have all kind of acknowledged in the industry you can do it. So there is a methodology for doing this, especially in real estate. But we've also started to see a lot of companies and tenants start to utilize these benefits. So that's kind of my history and opportunity zones. And you're having the last laugh, right? Because the program has actually <laughs> taken off. It's yes. quite large uh, by magnitudes, uh, larger than some other tax increment Absolutely. programs. So why don't we start with a little bit of background and you know, Jimmy, if you can say a few words on the basics and how it works and how much capital has been raised. Sure, sure. So, uh, well, first I'd like to incorporate the audience if I could by a show of hands. Who here has made at least one investment into a qualified opportunity fund to date? I'm just curious. Okay, so we have a pretty experienced crowd here, so I don't know that we need to go over, belabor the basics too much, but just in case anybody is relatively new to the program. By the way, what I really like about the Opportunity Zones program is that it, it's a, it's a place-based tax policy that's designed to incentivize capital flow into typically underinvested communities. But unlike some of its predecessors, there isn't a lot of bureaucracy involved. There isn't a lot of red tape. It's not a tax credit program you have to apply for or jump through a bunch of hoops. Uh, it's really just a framework, I like to think of it as, that, that, that sets up this tax advantage. So you have to start with a capital gain, and it can come from any source. Uh, unlike a 1031 exchange, which has to come from real estate, this gain can come from sale of stock, sale of Bitcoin, collectibles, whatever. Within 180 days of 
realizing that gain, you roll it over into a qualified opportunity fund that then deploys capital eventually into uh, a qualifying investment into a qualified opportunity zone, one or more of 8,700 plus census tract locations all over the country and including our overseas territories and, and Puerto Rico in particular, um, you get access to a handful of incentives. One is you get to defer recognition of that initial gain until the end of 2026. And we'll talk about that a little bit later in the panel because that date might change pending some legislation that's on the, the table right now. Um, benefit number two, it has actually expired, but you did get to reduce the amount of gain that you recognized in 26 by either 10% or 15%. I won't get into the details with that because it takes too long. Uh, but benefit number three is really the biggest one is you get to eliminate all capital gains tax liabilities on the subsequent opportunity zone investment after a 10-year holding period. So it's really phenomenal, powerful tax incentive. And oh, you wanted me to talk about the capital flow. That was the second part of the question. That too. Right? So to date, um, well, I should also first say, when this program was first rolled out early 2018, Secretary Mnuchin, um, the, the, the Treasury Secretary at the time under President Trump, estimated that this would be a $100 billion program. And just to put that into context, the second biggest economic development program in the United States is probably the New Markets Tax Credit Program, NMTC. And that program's typically capped at $3.5 billion per year. So already to date, and we, I haven't even reached the end yet, we haven't even reached 2026, 27, when this thing's gonna sunset and wind down, I've estimated that we've already eclipsed that $100 billion mark based on uh, a handful of estimates that are floating around out there. I don't know if you gentlemen feel differently, or you, am I in the ballpark? Yeah. Okay, good, I mean, so I, I think this has potential to be much bigger than, than anticipated. A lot of capital is flowing into the program already, for sure. Great. You already mentioned the potential extension. It's one of the regulatory questions out there. Joe, what are you hearing about that? And uh, can you describe what might happen with this piece of legislation? Sure. I want to go out on a limb and say it's 50-50. So I'm going to go way out there. Um, but I mean, the, the, the act that has bipartisan support that's been floating around now um, would do a variety of things. Uh, one, as you were saying, would extend the deferral date to December 31, 2028. Uh, and by extension, would then allow investors to both get the 10 and 15% benefits uh, for investments that are made in 2022 and 2023. So, you know, you would, if you deferred $100, in 2022, you would only pay tax on $85 on December 31, 28. So we have one, which is pretty valuable from a, when people start to model this out, that two-year deferral with higher interest rates is, you know, got some, some juice to it from an IRR point of view. So that's one of the main benefits that we would have in, in this. The second, you know, one is, you know, they would additionally allow kind of a fund-to-fund -fund structure. Uh, basically now a quaff can't invest in another quaff. Uh, and it's just the way they structured it initially. They would allow the pooling of capital from one quaff to maybe invest in another quaff. So you would have potentially, you know, more of like I think the normal fund-to-fund -fund structure we have. We've, we've struggled with having to create certain 
mechanisms where we can't invest in another quaff. We have to kind of invest below the quaff into the quaff at Opportunity Zone business. But that, I think, is also going to be you know, potentially valuable for large investment funds that want to pool capital together and invest jointly. Uh, the third, third thing is they, you know, they are going to want to put some amount of transparency into this. So right now, you know, there is limited reporting that a QOF has to do, and anyone who's had to fill out certain forms knows the limitation on those forms, which is basically, you know, what, what uh, zone, what uh, census tract did you invest in, and what's the entity you invested in in that census tract. There's really not too more about it, but they would put some more parameters about disclosure and the impact that that has on the community. Uh, and then they would, which is not a, not a great thing, they would also want to relook at potentially certain census tracts that were originally designated. So there's going to potentially be a redo on certain census tracts. Uh, there'll be a grandfathering of investments that occurred, but maybe going forward, future investments would not be able to be done in certain census tracts. And those are mainly around those tracks that meet the definition uh, from an income point of view, generally around the fact that they have you know, large student bodies there. So the one that always comes up you know, is technically the area around Stanford University. And anyone who's been out there knows you know, the wealth out there. But that area around Stanford University is technically meets the definition because when you factor in the students. So there will be a relook at certain uh, census tracts to see if they still should qualify going forward. The majority of this would be very beneficial for the industry, especially the couple year deferral, and especially with the fact that we could have more kind of feeder funds that are created. I use the word 50-50 that this would you know, potentially be out there. Um, most people believe it uh, will get attached to, and there's a lot of term, is called the tax extenders, and that is generally something that happens with bipartisan support at the end of the year. We'll see how the election goes and everything else, but assuming you know, there's some level of bipartisan support and the extenders act is going to get done sometime after the election and most likely uh, before the Christmas uh, break, what they will do is this will get attached to it. And both the Real Estate Roundtable and the Economic Innovation Group you know, seem to be lining up this so that you know, we're hopeful that it will get passed. Um, and as I said, you know, we're thinking you know, there's probably at least a 50% chance it will get passed by this year. I'm not sure what you're hearing, but that's I think I'm hearing the same stuff you're <laughs> hearing, Joe, because I think we're both in touch with former members of Senator Tim Scott's office. Yeah. Um, I've been speaking with Shea Hawkins, who actually helped draft the legislation while he was uh, Senator Tim Scott's tax policy advisor. And he's been telling me much the same thing. He says, this, this really does have bipartisan support. By the way, the initial Opportunity Zone legislation had broad bipartisan and bicameral support. That got lost in the mainstream media um, from day one in 2018 and 2019, the New York Times and other mainstream media publications unfairly branded the Opportunity Zone uh, provisions of the legislation as a 
terrible Trump policy uh, that was just helping his real estate friends get rich. And by the way, yeah, it is unapologetically a great tax cut program uh, for, for investors, that is for sure. That's what it's designed to do. But uh, it does have broad bipartisan support. And the, the legislation was actually initially drafted while President Obama was in the White House. It got a, took a few years to eventually get pushed through, and then it did get passed as part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act at the end of 17 under President Trump. But Shea seems to think that you know, because it is bipartisan, yep. it's kind of hard to pass anything too bipartisan this close to an election. Uh, this, this legislation was introduced in April, the reform legislation that Joe just outlined for you. And what I'm hearing from, from Shea and from others and, and what you're hearing as well is this type of thing typically does get passed after the election day. Once the swords get put away, as, as Shea mentioned to me uh, last week, we were on an Opportunity Zone panel um, at a different event. And so I, I think there's a very good chance that it does get passed before the end of the year. Um, some other people on the panel seem to think that it might still be too politically charged a topic. Maybe it's going to be saved for the Congress in 2023. And that might depend on what the balance of power shakes out to be. So it's speculation at this point. I'm hopeful that at, at, at some point down the road we do get an extension. Because it, 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 the, it currently, this thing is going to expire at the end of 26 is the last day that you can realize a capital gain and have it eligible for rolling over into an Opportunity Zone fund. So depending on how you, uh, how, how you accrue the gain, I think you'd have until potentially mid-September of 27. But I always have to look over to the uh, September, tax profession. September 9th or 10th, depending Yeah, I think that's right, yeah. I've even heard 11th sometimes, too. It depends how you start counting the 180 days after March 15th, right? Yep. But, uh, yeah, so at that point, the whole thing just, just ends. So as an industry now, we're trying to push for this to get extended in a permanent fashion the way that other tax policy programs and tax credit programs oftentimes do over time. That would be great. It would be great. And, and the one thing I will point out is if there is this, we will, you know, I, I think a lot of people did not understand the designation process that happened in early 2018, which was really delegated and completely given to the governors. Um, and in this case, you know, if a zone is taken away, a new zone can be designated. So, you know, there probably will be some local and state horse trading that goes on. The other part that I think is kind of a real sleeper in there when this designation process hopefully occurs is there was a lot of zones that when, when you think about it, and probably more from an, an an industrial point of view in the cities or maybe where manufacturing was, where they were what they were called zero population zones. And those zero population zones were unable to be designated. So if you think about, you know, somewhere on the Newark waterfront, this you know, talk about bipartisan support and Cory Booker support, uh, you know, there was probably an area there that, you know, could not be designated because no one lived there, or an old refinery where no one lived there. Those areas will be able to be additive and be designated. And you know, that could be some huge, large development for that community if they're going to turn what maybe was a refinery or a large industrial facility that now could be designated into like a big community or a manufacturing facility or whatever. That, that is quiet in there, but I do think that's something, if this does go through, 
you know, could be very important for those local areas to look at. And we've talked to a couple states and localities that, you know, originally said, I wish I could have had a chance to designate this area in 2018. We said, well, you might get a second shot at the apple here to designate it. I was going to say that would be great. You would get a 15% discount looking back, even if you invested last year or this year. But we're not pinning our hopes on it. And Partly the reason is, is we don't get that discount. You do as investors. We really look at this as a real estate investment. And frankly, what we've been doing as a firm for 17 years, when we came to it, we just happened to have a number of projects in these zones. And we figured out it's quite interesting for investors to claim the tax break. Kunal, that theme, really selecting this as a real estate or real assets investment, if you will, uh, you look at a lot of private markets, a lot of strategies. How is this different and how is it interesting or maybe challenging when you compare opportunity zone investments and manager and investment selection to other private market opportunities? Yeah, look, th there are many factors that goes into that, right? So the, as we discussed, we talked about the tax side of the equation. There are, there are a lot of benefits from a tax perspective, but it means nothing if the investment ends up being zero, right? And Yes, there has been a lot of capital raise, and you know Jimmy and Joe both talked about sort of hundred plus million dollars. So it's a successful program, but you don't see as much institutionalization of, of the underlying sort of quality of managers or sort of developers, right? And so you don't see large asset managers rushing to raise billions of dollars in this channel. And so, from what I see, is you have to be careful of who you partner with. Just because there are capital raise and capital has been deployed, doesn't mean ten years later you're going to get a great IRR on that. And so we, we, we profess to our clients the first thing we need to focus on is the quality of investment, which is the real estate and how you go about it. Um, there's a lot to unpack. You obviously have to make sure that you have the tax law completely sort of under, uh, under, under your control. You have to manage your deal flow. You know, one of the things that we spend a lot of time with you guys is understanding that the capital is coming in. You have to match the incoming capital to essentially right properties because you only have six months to deploy that capital. And so making sure that you have a very rich pipeline uh, of new development opportunities is critical. Um, building and you know, creating a, st a structure where it's diversified, right? a lot of things have gone into one area, which is all multifamily, which is great. But one of the things that we have enjoyed working with you guys is you have done single family, you have done industrial, there's a little bit more diversity across different regions. So you know, we think that you know, you have to think of this from a, exactly the same lens as any other private investment you will make, which is long duration asset, where the quality of the underlying operator and developer is gonna be the main thing. And like I said earlier, the tax means nothing if you end up getting nothing, uh, no real investment return. Um, there are other pieces along those lines that sort of factors in, in the way we think about uh, underwriting is, you know, we wanna make sure that you have a track record in, in doing something in the development area. I cannot tell you how many managers I've seen come to our office and say, you have a, we have a qualified opportunity zone fund, and you ask them to show us their track record around what they have done in, the, in, in sort of development, and they have nothing. Or they've done two properties, and their properties were essentially a, a friend of theirs who built a local sort of house or something like that. So there were a lot of interesting stuff that we saw that just doesn't pass the sniff test. And so when I say the, the bar is higher, and very few institutional quality managers like yourselves, GTIs, and few others that we have partnered with are one that we can be very happy and excited to partner with. And that matters. Uh, again, uh, you, know, you, you can screw up a variety of different ways, and we don't want to 
our clients get screwed up on investment on the real estate side. Thank you, thank you for that. Um, the real uh, background to it is we were managing institutional capital for 15 years before this came around, right? So I appreciate um, the compliment there of being more institutional, but it really actually came from the history. This is not a hobby for us, not something we started just because of the tax break. And what I'm not you, just saying this yeah. because I'm on this panel, by the way. Well, I would uh, appreciate we have, it anyway. We have reviewed hundreds of managers <laughs> in this category. Yeah. Uh, there are a few that we sort of took a very deep dive on, but like, well, I can name those on my sort of hand right, here, right, right. which is like, there are like probably 10 or 11 that we consider to be high quality. Right, and one of the reasons probably is the fact that this has to be new development, yep. right? You can't buy existing assets for an opportunity zone fund, and a lot of the larger funds out there, Blackstone, Carlisle, Apollo, they buy existing properties if they have 10 billion to invest, you actually can't possibly shove it down into the development stage because these buildings, you know, they just don't need that much capital. What are you seeing, Jimmy, in terms of what people have invested in and where when it comes to opportunity zones? Yeah, so I'm gonna rely on uh, data from Novogratic, which is a, a professional services firm that has really deep experience in, in tax credits, and, but in particular opportunity zones, and they have actually surveyed qualified opportunity funds. I think they are surveying uh, over 1,000 qualified opportunity funds in, in their survey uh, these days, which is a pretty large chunk of the market. They estimate it's about maybe a quarter to a third of the total market in terms of uh, total transaction volume that they are surveying. And, and I think it's about 75 to 80% of the funds that, uh, that have been raised so far to date have at least some exposure to residential. So I, that's my long-winded way of saying the, the, the by far the most popular asset class for qualified opportunity fund investing is uh, multifamily real estate, some single family in there as well, but just anecdotally the, the types of fund sponsors that I work with typically are doing a lot of, of multifamily. Um, I saw uh, some hotels at the beginning, but then the pandemic kind of uh, did away with the hospitality assets. Um, I don't know that it's too dissimilar from just real estate at large, fair number of uh, industrial and, and warehouse deals as well. Um, actually, I had a question for Kunal though, if I can play moderate sure, for course. a second. I wanted to get back to your iCapital platform and ask you, you, you have, how many advisors did you say? 11,000. 11,000, that's impressive. So, and you have uh, a wide variety of different alternative assets mm -hmm. that you list on your platform. Um, probably a lot of DSTs, energy, maybe some conservation easements even. And Not much in energy or conservation. Okay, well, I'm, I'm going out on a limb here. Yeah. But certainly opportunities as well. well how, do, how do these advisors think about when and where to put their clients into opportunity zone products as opposed to any other type of real estate product or other type of alternative asset? Well, tax is a critical factor of how to think about that, right? So if you have a client who has a decent amount of low-cost basis shares in some other stock, right, or has significant profits, it is very clear that they will look for a certain portion of that capital to go towards opportunity zone, right? So if you are sitting in, if you're a Moderna employee from 2015, and even though stock has gone down by half in the last one year, you still are sitting on a significant amount of low-cost basis, for example, right? And let's say now all of a sudden you decide to get out of it and you have millions of dollars of gains. It's not unreasonable for that client to consider some portion of that money to go towards sort of opportunity zone real estate op transactions. And so it's a conversation. 
All right, when we have our sales reps call the clients and say, what are you looking for? Understanding their portfolio, understanding their needs, liquidity, and how recent the wealth creation has been will be all of the conversations we'll have, right? Um, and so our, our team is prepared to position products accordingly. We are not just pushing opportunities on all day long or DST. It has to be um, sort of in line with what the market essentially does. The other factor, sort of going to the, one of the comments that you made about the market though, uh, Jimmy, which is, yes, most clients are used to getting a lot of multifamily, some industrials, but I do see there is a bit of a change happening in people's perception around certain categories right now. And it's partly a contrarian play, but a lot of people think that you know they, they feel like they are underexposed right now to segments such as office. For some people, that is a contrarian play, as well as hospitality. Right? We have been underbuilding in that area for now many years. Uh, pandemic didn't help. The current sort of inflationary environment is not helping either. But you know, for the long term, most of these assets survive well. And if you find a right zone, you talked about student housing, but there are a lot of interesting sort of opportunities, zone op uh, sort of uh, development opportunities uh, in student housing for student hotels. You go to many of the major sort of uh, sort of uh, college towns, and the quality of hotels is not there. Mm -hmm. And you have an opportunity to build something there as well. And many of them are opportunity zones because of the the income sort of ratio of the of students. So there are there are some contrarian opportunities that clients are asking for increasingly. Um, and I think that there are some opportunities that people like yourselves may consider uh, putting them in the portfolio as well. Yep. And we have done student housing. There is one in the first fund. There will probably be more in the second. To us, it's kind of anything you can live in. And if it falls into a great university campus and there is dire need for housing, um, it's just an apartment in a different format, um, but certainly fulfills that niche. Maybe we switch topics a little bit to the format of the funds themselves and talk about diversification versus single deal. What's um, kind of the landscape there, Jimmy, on, in terms of single asset versus fund investment? I've, I've seen both work, really. And <clears throat> fund sponsors come to me and they ask me that question, hey, should I pitch this portfolio we have as one huge multi-asset fund or should I break it up and you know, pitch each project separately and take in money directly into uh, a single asset fund? And I, I don't know that I have a magic answer, really. I think it kind of depends. Different investors have different needs. Uh, if you have some sort of coherent strategy or investment thesis that you can weave across all of the assets, I think it might make sense to do a multi-asset fund, and certainly some investors want to be diversified into, you know, across. Maybe it's the same property type, but maybe it's in different locations. Maybe it's in different city blocks in the same geographic location. Um, either way, you get a little bit of diversification across multiple buildings. But then some investors really want to know which specific building am I going to own a piece of? So I don't, I don't really know if I have a really good answer there. There's pros and cons either way, but you know, as an investor, know that you do have options. There are multi-asset funds and there are single-asset funds. Oftentimes, a fund sponsor will present a multi-asset fund offering. Maybe you'll really only like one or two of them, um, one or two of the, the deals in there. You can oftentimes go to that fund manager and ask them, hey, would you consider uh, a sidecar deal on just this one building or just that building and, and you know it depends on 
on the fund sponsor. It depends on how much you're bringing to the table, but they can oftentimes work with you to, to put together something uh, where you're coming in just on one deal. That's what I've seen anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if, I, if I can jump in there, um, I agree both has worked, and we have seen both sort of kind of deals. Our preference is the multi-fund, multi-sort of asset portfolios of fund structure. It's partly because, again, it goes back to the investment fundamentals, right? One, one single property risk is much higher than diversifying that risk across multiple properties. You know, if you invest that across 10 to 12 assets, again, if you think from an investment perspective, you're reducing the risk, and that's the number one focus of ours. Um, we also like the fund structure from an exit perspective, right? When you are thinking about an exit of a, a multi-fund, in, in your case, a REIT structure, right? You have more optionality. You can sell single individual assets when, they, when the tenure expires. You can potentially do a portfolio sale of a sale of like four or five properties together. You can go IPO if the markets are conducive. So there is just far more flexibility. You know, trying to IPO a single asset or trying to sort of create a, a sales plan around one asset is going to be very limiting. You are going to have a very finite number of buyers and very finite sale process. So we think the additional optionality is even more important because we don't know what the speculation, we were speculating about tax laws, what will happen six months from now. If we don't know what is going to happen six months from now, we sure don't know what is going to happen 10 years from now. Yep. And so why even speculate on, on the risk there? Let's try to diversify and give ourselves more options and make sure that our clients have the best outcome, possible outcome, depending on the conditions at that point. The tax law could change, the IPO market could change, but we know that more options leads to better returns. Yeah, and, and the final regs that came out, as I said, in January of 2020, really provided that maximum flexibility, which, you know, creates multiple different vehicles that you can, you know, have as your investment, single asset, multiple assets, you know, and, and you know, we've seen all different types. And, you know, we, you know, deal with people who have specific funds, like, uh, like you do, uh, Peter. Uh, but also people who've raised capital for specific asset deals. Uh, and, you know, both, both have raised capital, both, you know, have worked from a capital deployment point of view. Uh, obviously, we'll know in time, you know, when we get to the exit, what the end results are on some of these. But, uh, you know, we've seen capital flow in both cases and capital flow efficiently in both cases. Peter, I've got a question yeah, for you, of course. actually. Uh, I like playing interviewer sometimes, so. <laughs> you're, you're the professional. <laughs> I caught a lull in the conversation. Definitely. Uh, I want to hear what pushback do you get from your investors regarding the Opportunity Zone rules, the platform itself, especially the 10-year hold, and how do you, how do you f reframe that for them potentially? Because I think the 10-year hold oftentimes is looked at as a hindrance but I think it could be kind of turned on its head and looked at as a big benefit, potentially, sometimes. Yeah, and that is most often the question. It's easy to get into these. It's harder to get out. And a 10-year time frame, you know, it passes quickly, but seems like a long time. And my answer, actually, to that usually is that the government is paying you for that. The underlying investment, the real estate, is what needs to make the return. And hopefully, it's an opportunistic type return commensurate with the risk of development, which is what we're doing. But normally, we would exit out of an investment like that in four or five years when the asset is completed, leased, what we call stabilized, and sold. 
and that should deliver a 17, 18% IRR, 1.8 times equity multiple. But with this legislation, we have to hold it for another seven or so years. It's a different asset because it's a core like property that has already been built, doesn't have risk in it. You know what the yield is. So usually people pay something like five or 6% for that. And if you add 17%, return over the first five years and then 5% return over the next seven, you kind of come up with the return profile of this investment, which is 12 to 14% IRR. Now, when people say, when they look at that and say 12, 14%, 10 year horizon, it seems, you know, I should maybe be getting paid more. And that's when the government comes in. The compensation for that long-term hold, for that illiquidity, and for locking you up for such a long time, is that three or four percent incremental IRR that you get by not paying taxes. So, if you get a nice double-digit return over a decade, compounding is beautiful, right? You can almost triple your money if you grow something 12 percent over 12 or 12 for 10 years. Um, but you have to wait a long time. They add about three or 4% to that, and to me, that's a fair compensation. Yeah, um, so that, that, that's my answer, and uh, it usually just goes back to, okay, well, what's, what are the other risks? And that's you know, development risk, but that's a different, different fundamental area. Uh, sure, I can, I, I can jump yeah. in uh, to yeah. answer some of the one question as well, which is, you know, we are, in our, on our platform, we have 10-year products available all the time, right? Mm -hmm. When you invest in traditional private equity, real estate, uh, distress opportunity. Uh, so for, for our users, that's never been a big issue. When they come to our platform, they expect the investment vehicle will be sort of long duration. The only caveat we have to present is there is some income coming from this, but there is no liquidity that will come. So the liquidity is more back-ended, whereas if you invest in buyout or you know, venture capital strategy, you may get some liquidity starting years four, five, and six. That's in education, but to your point, that's the only way. If you want to may save money on, on taxes, and to your point, government is paying you for that, this is the only way you to do it. And so most people are fairly okay with that, as long as they put less than 1% of the portfolio, right? If you're a $10 million capital, you're not putting $1 million here. You're oftentimes putting $100,000, maybe $200,000 capital. Sure. I think the other thing that it was in, embedded in what Peter was saying is, you know, we always talk about the gain being eligible to be excluded. The other part is it's not only the gain, it's the depreciation recapture. So when people ask the question they had to Peter is, you know, yeah, you're holding this for a longer period of time, but, you know, you're basically, you know, for those extra years, getting tax-free cash flow. When we've modeled these out for the last three or four years, especially in the multifamily area, you know, what we end up telling people, and, it, and usually people step back and take a second, we said your pre-tax IRR is 12, and your after-tax IRR is 14. There is potentially, in most of these deals, absolutely no tax, not only on the appreciation, but on all your rental income and cash flows. And that's kind of an element that, you know, people don't think about, is this is the entire investment is potentially completely tax sheltered. And it comes out you know, in the models we do in the multifamily area with the depreciation, because you don't have to recapture the depreciation. That is also excluded on the back end. So yeah, you may have to hold it for a longer period of time, but basically you're holding it in a tax-free bond for years five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 10. So 
Uh, we have about 15 minutes left. Jimmy, have we missed a question that you usually ask in your panels? Or Well, uh, I want to talk about one more thing maybe before we turn it back over. So we've seen a, a market drawdown yep. in the past uh, nine months or so. I don't know where GTIS gets a lot of its opportunity zone investors. Um, you know, for other types of real estate tax programs, by the way, we, we kind of glossed over the fact that qualified opportunity funds can invest in businesses as well. But the fact of the matter is the vast majority of qualified opportunity fund investing is done through real estate. So maybe we can talk about business on a different panel a different day, or you can come find us afterwards and talk to us about it. But, but you don't necessarily have to have gains from real estate to do opportunity zone investing. Right. Oftentimes you'll get stock investors to come in which kind of provides them with a nice diversification method. They can get diversified away from the stock market and into potentially non-correlated uh, real alternative asset like real estate, right? Have you seen those types of investors, the capital coming in, shrink a little bit over the last few months? Or is that a concern of yours going forward because of the, the drawdown in the in the broader stock market. I wish I had a crystal ball here. We have not yet, but speaking of a six-month window, we are seeing investors who are deploying gains from March and April, and if they were smart and took some chips off the table, they're looking at pretty sizable gains. It's only six or seven months since we had a record stock market. It's unbelievable what's happened. So I'll punt on that answer Maybe because it's a lagging I don't indicator, know. Right? It, it, it certainly is a yeah. lagging indicator and uh, we might start seeing much lesser flows as the gains dissipate, frankly, starting in, in May, June. But we had a great start to fund two and have enough capital to deploy it in a diversified manner. Uh, it had a bigger initial close than the first fund. So I honestly don't know. But I would not be surprised given the drawdown. A lot of our capital sources came from equity markets. And yeah, you're not looking at a ton of gain lately. <laughs> um, there are other sources. We're seeing business sales um, that either happened during the peak or are still happening, and you have well over a year to deploy that. Uh, if it comes on a K-1, and Joe maybe can speak to that, uh, you have plenty of time. It's not just 180 days like with stocks or bonds. Um, if you sold real estate, really anything that comes on a K-1, you have well until next year, even if it was done uh, you know, several months ago. So we're still seeing that, business sales. But uh, a lot of the gain came from equities, and that's one of our you know, frustrations with the program. Everything was really quite smart and well-conceived in the original legislation, except for this one thing, actually two. One, why did they have to say that it's got to be gains, right? Why can't it just be free cash that you could invest for these communities and support them? Um, and the other frustration is they said it has to be invested within six months. The word invested has caused so much heartbreak and, and, and misery because it should have said committed within six months. Developments do not invest money in the moment of time. They invest over time. And if they only had said commit within six months of gain, we would have plenty of time to call the capital. We can't do that. We have to take the money right away, day one, because the word invested, as the Treasury has interpreted it, means it's got to be put into the QOF on, on day one. So uh, those two frustrations, yeah. the, an yeah. otherwise very innovative piece of legislation and a, and a great program. 
let's then switch to the audience um, if there are questions. Can you repeat his repeat question? Repeat the question just so everyone's... Yeah, I think you're saying the new legislation that's potential, would it be retroactive for investments that were made? The answer is it would, it would change the, the time period of when the deferral would be. So by changing the time period, investments that were made in 2021 where people did not think they could get any of the reduction benefit, they would get the reduction benefit. So the way they would change it would be any investments made prior to December 31, 2022 would get a 15% reduction. Any investments made from January 1, 2023 to December 31, 2023 would get a 10% reduction. But everything in the past, if you invested in 2021 and you said, oh, I missed the reduction, you would be able to get that back. This is what was a phenomenon that happened in 2021, December 31, 2021. I think you experienced this, is because the five-year period was expiring, a lot of people wanted to put their money into funds on December 31, 2021. There was some urgency to get it done. To get it done. Yeah. We may see that again. If this legislation gets passed, you know, there will be, I think, people running to get their gains in on December 31, 2022. Now, assuming it gets passed this year. Assuming it gets passed this year. Yeah. That marriage that Peter talks about of, hey, if you got K-1 gains, you got extra time. That is, that is correct if you've got K-1 gains, but the K-1 gains will start December 31, 2022. So if you had a, a gain that happened in earlier part of the year, that will be the first day you could invest it from a K-1 point of view. And we saw this phenomena happen in 2021 um, when people were rushing to get their investments in on that specific date, which is the first day they could put it in. And I think you probably experienced a lot of people putting money into your fund on that specific day of the year. Yep. I'll repeat the question. If you are a New York resident today, and New York is not a participating state, meaning you cannot use your New York state capital gains because they opted <coughs> out of the program, unfortunately. You can only use federal gains. What happens if you now move to Florida in the intervening period? I'm assuming in the next couple of years, how does the deferral play out in 2026, as well as, I guess, the final gain exclusion if you become a Florida resident? Is, is New York State coming to get their taxes? You paid New York already. Yeah, um, I think Florida is okay. Okay, it's more if I think you move from like let's say New York to Massachusetts. Okay, there you paid gains for New York purposes now. And now you become a Massachusetts resident, you have deferred gains that you're picking up on your federal return. You know, are you paying it twice? That's, I think, the big question. Um, I don't, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's going to be answered. Uh, I think states, states are more concerned of, of like the opposite, where you defer taxes in a state like Massachusetts now and you quickly move to Florida and Massachusetts says you deferred it in 2022 and now you're a Florida resident in 2026. You know, the, the, the rules on this haven't caught up from a state point of view. 
The only thing that's equivalent is they, there are certain rules around deferred comp of when you earn comp in a state and then you move to another state. Um, they have, most states have not applied that yet. So you can theoretically defer your gains and become a resident in another state. And if you're a resident of Florida, when that income's recognized, you may not pay any state tax on it. Mm -hmm. uh, I would think that some of the states may start to maybe say if you leave the state, you're gonna have to pay tax on this or do something. But right now, you can slip through the cracks, I guess is the mm -hmm. best way to describe California it. California came up with a plan to tax people on exit. This would be one of those yes, that they could conceptually 1031 exits. They would say you invested when you were a resident in California. Correct. So 10 years from now. Yeah. You know, California, I wouldn't be surprised if they come up with something that, um, mm -hmm. you know, knocks on your door that you invested back then, you now have a... Now company. you have to pick it yep. up, yeah. Yep. Any other questions or anything in your sleeve of questions, Jimmy, that we have uh, just Four minutes. two or three minutes left? Oh, we got it. We do? Let's do an audience question there. I'll repeat the question. Uh, speaking of the proposal that would pair the extension yeah. with the recalculation of zones and potentially uh, creating some new ones while taking some away, has anyone looked at the actual creation yeah. of employment opportunities and all the criteria that the government wanted uh, to advance with this program? Obviously, they're giving a big tax break. They want the communities to grow, not just the managers to make a nice return. I'll, I'll give a really short answer is uh, not really at the government level at all. Uh, there just is no lever right now. They don't even have the data reporting, and that's part of what they're trying to fix with this extension that we would be required to report. But we as managers have long ago volunteered to do that. So we are tracking, if you look at our ESG report, we have a sustainability report for the fund last year. We have one coming out in the next few weeks. We are already tracking um, all the employment statistics, poverty level, job creation. Uh, our funds in the past have been ranked at the top of the Gresby survey, so we review the environmentals very uh, strictly and look at things like water usage, power uh, efficiency, uh, waste, and all of that. It's in the report, and we are doing it for our zip codes, for our census tracts as to what the improvement has been. I can say that it's already improving. Maybe that's a factor of uh, where we've invested or the economy. No one's aggregated that. As far as I know, there's not been a, a comprehensive study of the impact of these zones and what then might result in redistribution of zones because maybe some of them are not fulfilling uh, the spirit of the program. Right, Have you seen right. any? Well, I can, I, yeah, I can add to that a little bit. So yeah, it, any really good qualified opportunity fund manager and, and Peter and his team at GTIS are doing this, they are getting ahead of the legislation. They're already doing some level of impact reporting or transparency reporting to show that they're creating X number of jobs or Y amount of economic impact or delivering you know, a certain uplift in the local tax base in these communities that desperately need these, uh, these, this private capital to flow into it for a couple of reasons. One, because they want to be ready when this legislation is passed. Two, they want to show their investors that they are doing the good that the uh, legislation intended. And, th and I think the third one is we want to tell success stories as an industry so that Congress has some, some reason why they would want to extend the program. Uh, there, but there, there is one study that I've seen uh, by a couple of professors out of 
uh, Cal Berkeley, if I recall correctly. It, it, and it's called, um, let's see, the, the last names are Kennedy and Wheeler. And they had access, uh, they work with the um, Joint Committee on Taxation. So they were able to get access to aggregated uh, QOF form 8996 data for the first couple of years of the program, 2019 and 2020. Their overall review of the program is rather unfavorable, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I think they had a, a, a agenda going into it, I suspect. Um, so their, their review of the program is, is a little bit clouded by that. Uh, but there is some good data in there that they were able to pull, pull out and, and some good insights in there. If you want to look that up, Kennedy and Wheeler, that study. Yeah. Any, anything else that comes to mind for you? Or? No, the only thing I think I wanted to add real, real quick is you know, when the program came out, you know, it had these disadvantages and it was, you know, you had, you, your capital had to be patient. You know, you had to have less debt, more equity. You had to have a 10-year hold. And I know in all the presentations for all your people this morning, Peter, those themes came out as kind of how you're looking at making current real estate investments that have a little bit less leverage, a little more patience, a little less downside. And it would seem, you know, if those themes are going to play out in the next couple of years, opportunity zone, qualified opportunity zone investments in real estate, you know, are marrying up a little bit more with the way the program is designed, you know, of how people want to deploy their capital. So what was, you know, pre probably 2021, 2022, hey, we want to be able to, you know, get out early. It's got too long of a hold. It's got too much equity versus debt. Um, all those things now are, seem to be more positively spun in all of your real estate investments, and all those themes came out in all the earlier sessions today. It's true. I, I think investors have really appreciated the low leverage that we are deploying with our investments conservatively, and that's something that came from the last crisis, from the GFC, when you could have levered something 80%. That debt was available back then, but then prices dropped 30%. And if you had 80% debt and your value was at 70, the 10% is when the bank came and took your asset. And you had never yeah. had a chance to recover if you went through a foreclosure. If you kept your debt at how we do it at about 50, it wasn't a great time, but we got through it and it took about two years to come back and another two or three years to then double the values. So if you can survive these turbulent periods, I think it goes back to Mohamed El Arian's, I love that saying, you just can't make a mistake that's fatal and that ends the course, right? It applies to real estate, just avoid those kinds of mistakes. I think we just about took our time. Um, our panelists will be around for a little bit, so if you have any additional specific questions, uh, please find them. We are gonna now move to review the performance of the first fund. So I'll invite my partner Amit here and thank our panelists for being with us this afternoon. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you like this episode, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by Opportunity DB. You can access our show notes by visiting opportunitydb.com forward slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode. <laughs>